Hello, everyone, and welcome to I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tom Stone, a senior research analyst at I4CP, the Institute for Corporate Productivity, the leading authority on next practices in human capital. The Next Practices Weekly podcast is one of the ways we share those practices with you by interviewing top HR leaders and facilitating discussion with the broader HR community on what high-performance organizations are doing differently with their people practices. From HR strategy to talent acquisition, learning and development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and much more. In late July of 2022, my colleagues Jackie Robertson, Nina Holtzberry, and Eric Davis hosted a conversation with Shweta Kirvi Mishra, Vice President, Organization and Talent Development at Waste Management. They had a wide-ranging discussion on embedding inclusion efforts into the business, overcoming diversity challenges, and fostering an inclusive, diverse, and equitable environment that will be a movement, not a moment. Here now is the discussion with Shweta Kirvi Mishra. Good morning, everyone. I have a few things I'd like to share with you before we engage with our speaker, who I'm very excited about. So um, I'm thanking you in advance for engaging and listening. Majretsma, Majretsma, Majretsma. Don't forget this word. The meaning will become clear in a few minutes. Many of my peers are researching the most inclusive practices to track and report demographic data, specifically two or more races. Perhaps like many of you, I began researching current and best practices. Now, some practices seem rooted in common sense, but I've been able to gain some good insights from I4CP, including companies want to track and report this data, but lack of specific technologies presented the biggest barrier. For greatest accuracy, be sure to capture intersectionality and race and ethnicity. Provide all options, allow respondents to select all that apply. Provide a fill-in response choice versus other, because that can feel alien. Include intersectionality beyond race, such as ethnicity, LGBTQ, um, race, disability status, etc. And also communicate the why. Why is this information needed and how will it be used? Provide multiple choices to self, multiple chances to self-identify. So at the time of pre-hire, the time of hire, six months into it and ongoing with periodic outreach and account for specific global barriers like privacy rights with LGBTQ. I particularly appreciated this advice. When considering whether to provide a box that says two or more races or select all that apply, the recommendation is to provide space for respondents to select any and all that apply. Because the point of counting isn't just representation, numbers. The point is to ensure that resources are correctly allocated towards addressing a particular group's needs. So my key takeaway is simply more respectful to create a process that asks how respondents identify rather than restrict their responses to checking a predefined box. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged to see what I hope will become a broader trend of encouraging self-identification on these surveys. I like the notion of check all that apply. And if that doesn't give you enough choice, fill in whatever else you want us to know. But I was curious. So the other day I reread section of Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed. I don't know if you've read that book, but I highly recommend it. 
It teaches the importance of reckoning with history. The storytelling is vivid and visceral, making history present and real. And in Hope Wabu's very powerful review of this book, she tells us that Clint Smith repeatedly encounters resistance from white Americans to believing the horrors of the past. Smith talks about the denial of Sally Hemings. You might be familiar with her. She was the daughter of a black enslaved woman, a mother who had no choice in her sexual relationship with Hemings' father, who was Thomas Jefferson's father-in-law. And Jefferson himself began a relationship with enslaved Hemings, which she had no power to refuse when he was in his mid-40s and she was only 16, fathering her six children. It's part of history that's denied by Monticello, that's the primary plantation of, the, of Thomas Jefferson, for decades, and only recently was it given space in the history of the place. Choices removed. Madretsma, Madretsma, Madretsma. Did you know that in 2021, the city of Utrecht in the Netherlands, the fourth largest city in the Netherlands, by the way, announced it would examine funding citizens that desire to change their surname from a slave name to another name? Surnames can still reflect the darker aspects of the Dutch colonial past. However, changing your name is notoriously difficult in the Netherlands. So currently you have to prove that you have psychological problems resulting from your name. You need an expert opinion from a registered medical professional, and then you can apply for the surname change at quite some cost. According to Maria Baumer, March 4th, 2022, the city of Utrecht addressed this in a resolution statement saying, it is inhumane that Surinamese and Antillian Dutch who are descended from enslaved people have to suffer daily from their last name. By the way, these naming practices were an intentional act. Slavery and everything that was derived from being African was systematically diminished. It's difficult to trace the descendants of slaves through the standard forms of genealogy. Even with 23andMe, it's so difficult. So Ms. Baumer goes on to say, for black and mixed blacks, descendants of slaves, the slave name they bear can often feel like one of the few connections to a past that has been deliberately erased. And I say, once again, no choice. Madretsma, madretsma, madretsma. The Dutch slave trade saw over 600,000 Africans enslaved in colonies stretching from Indonesia to the Caribbean islands. Family identities were completely severed from their heritage. It's a cruel legacy of slavery, and unsurprisingly, the lack of record keeping regarding the African origins of the enslaved was a deliberate endeavor. Many Dutch plantation owners named their slaves random names. So some who bought and sold enslaved people used numbers. So for example, a slave from Sierra Leone would be labeled woman number five from Sierra Leone. In some instances, post-abolition in 1863, emancipated slaves either chose new names or were given them by local authorities. So for Linda Neutemir, she's the chairman of the National Institute for Dutch Slavery History. Her surname, Neutemir, means never again in Dutch. You know, the shame of it all, those emancipated slaves' names were chosen for them by their Dutch owners without regard for the humans they named, without regard for their identity or recognition of the enslaved person's connection 
to their native lands, their families, their history, their cultures, or their customs. Some examples of Dutch naming practices include names of Dutch towns spelled backwards. When slavery was abolished, these names were carried over to the public register. Some of these slave names make no sense in the modern world, and they also symbolize dehumanizing processes of slavery. Madretsma is one of those random surnames forced upon enslaved people by their Dutch owners. What does Madretsma mean? It has no meaning. Madretsma is Amsterdam spelled backwards. Adding insult to injury intentionally serves or severs any human connection to one's past. So for those of you who might be in the throes of creating your surveys to collect, track, and report demographic data, I hope you'll consider leveraging the survey insights that I shared with you today. My thanks to my dear colleagues at I4CP for their incredible research and insightful next practices. I hope you all will create the space needed for people to self-identify. I hope you create the space for intersectionality across a broader spectrum of race, ethnicity, disability, gender, and gender identity. Self-identification is deeply personal and should not be underestimated as it relates to your ability to create a more inclusive culture and a culture of belonging. Our history tells us that our ancestors had no choice. As DEI practitioners, you have the power to give employees a choice. Do your part, create a space for everyone to check all that apply. Thank you for listening. I'm very excited to introduce our guest speaker today, Shwete Kirby Mishra. She's the Vice President of Organization and Talent Development at WM. So Shweta, welcome. We are very happy to have you today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Um, I want to go back to, uh, first of all, I want to kind of talk about what's top of mind for you, but maybe you can kind of weave it into the quote that you shared with us. I love it, by the way. Um, and I understand this comes from your father. Do what you like and like what you have to do. Um, I absolutely love this. So talk to us about why you selected that quote. Mm -hmm. um, why it has meaning for you and, and what's top of mind for you today as we begin this conversation. Um, sounds great. So as you would imagine, when I was growing up, I did not always enjoy doing my chores. And that's where the quote actually began is, you know, him trying to instill in me that you don't always get the choice to do the work that you enjoy. That being said, I think it has significantly deeper meaning in my life, both professionally and personally at this point. Um, when I think about doing what I like, I'm really talking about being able to pursue both my professional and personal passions. That include diversity, equity, and inclusion work in a professional setting. It includes volunteering. It includes uh, bringing up a holistic family experience for my family. And the other part of um, liking what you have to do, there are so many things that I wish were done differently or wish were done um, better. And I cannot boil the ocean by myself. So how do I uh, inculcate the passion areas that I have into chipping away at those areas that I wish were different or better? 
So that's kind of uh, how I apply that quote in my life today, um, significantly deeper meaning than when it actually started. I love that. It sounds like your father not only had great wisdom, but he also knew you very well as an individual. Um, and I hear you about the chores thing early on. Um, so can you talk a little bit about it? I want the audience to, to get to know you a little bit more in terms of your professional uh, background and work. Can you give us a little bit more on uh, your professional background and, and what, what is the work that you are doing and leading at WM? Sure. So um, I have been extremely blessed and fortunate to have a really wide and versatile career within the HR function. Uh, I've been part of Fortune 150 companies, a privately owned family owned company, and right now Fortune 200 company, both in North American settings as well as global settings. Um, I've had a list of opportunities as a business partner, both in the field and corporate worlds, as well as COE roles like the one I currently have. Wow. I have had uh, the privilege to be the head of diversity and inclusion at the Fortune 150 company at ITW for a couple of years. And currently my role encapsulates all talent processes from hire to retire, as well as culture and engagement, which DNI. Uh, DE&I is an integral part of. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited about the work because I'm passionate about it. Um, I believe there's a way to be practical about it and see results in a meaningful way. And we are trying to focus on those areas. Like I said before, we cannot boil the ocean. And I kind of want to ground us in the fact that the DE&I journey at WM is fairly recent. Mm -hmm. uh, it was about three years ago that we truly put intentional focus on this work. And so it's new for us. And the approach that we've taken is ensuring that we have a diverse set of voices, no pun intended. And we have a diversity inclusion council that's made up of uh, business leaders, corporate leaders, field leaders across different levels in the organization that help us inform our strategy. We've ensured that we keep maintain focus on those key areas that are the most meaningful for the business. And a lot of that is around focus on internal as, as well as external uh, bits. So talent acquisition that, in, that allows for representation, diverse representation into the organization. And then internal work that goes around creating a workplace where everybody um, believes and feels that they can thrive and live up to their own potential. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of work going on with employee resource groups, uh, partnerships that allow for um, engaging and connection externally and internally, and a lot of other things that I'm sure we'll get into. I love that. Um, and you know, when we talked not too long ago, Shweta, you shared um, a lot about how DE&I work is being done not just in, in you know, all of the areas, which is important, but specifically in talent acquisition. Mm -hmm. um, and I was intrigued by some of the work that you're doing there. What is, what's driving, you know, I mean, I think about the great resignation. I think about how difficult it is to get talent. Um, so quite honestly, I was pleased to hear about a lot of your focus there, but what is driving the need in talent acquisition in terms of, is it, you know, recruiting greater volume? Talk to us about that. Sure. So 
putting things in context, um, between the years of 2018 and 2020, uh, we hired anywhere from 8,000 to 11,000 people across the board at WM. Uh, this include field, uh, field operations roles as well as corporate roles, blue collar, white collar, et cetera. In 2021, we hired almost 15,000 employees. So it's a drastic increase in the volume. And it basically told us two stories. One, that it was a good problem to have because the business was doing well and we were increasing volumes. Two, that we probably had a retention risk and we weren't able to retain the ones that we were hiring. Uh And it was critical for us to ensure that we were widening our talent pools uh, instead of fishing in the same talent pools. So here are a couple of things we did. One is we really assessed what our diversity sourcing uh, practices were and methodology was. And if I'm being perfectly honest, there wasn't any. Uh, We had a few independent partnerships here and there. We had a fragmented approach. We did our best. We believe we had good faith efforts going out, but there wasn't a holistic strategy around it. To a lot of our talent acquisition folks wanted to do the right thing, but didn't have the skills and the training and the resources that they needed to do it. So we advised a holistic unified strategy. We called it our diversity recruiting strategy on a page. And we had very specific work streams that followed that process. Uh, we upskilled and future skilled 100% of our TA staff, which means we had them go through diversity, equity, and inclusion training that taught them how to source from diverse talent pools, that taught them how to look for talent with transferable and applicable skills and not just ones that had all the boxes checked on their resume. But even better, it equipped them to help the hiring managers and their partners to source, hire, interview, and select candidates that we've that were focused on the competencies as opposed to the eyeball scan of appearance or what was on the resume, et cetera. And I think that made a huge difference. I'm very proud to say once we launched this, I would say close to 96 or 97% of all slates had at least one diversity candidate on it. So it showed meaningfully in terms of metrics and measurable, analytics when we invested in our talent acquisition group. Well, I completely appreciate um, that shift to more of a competency-based entry requirements. A a question there, Um, Mm -hmm. is that similar to skills first? So you're looking at the skills that they have first versus, you know, pedigree and et cetera, okay. Yes. Let me ask you this. So when you talk about competency-based, do you all have any particular assessments? Um, And, you know, I've I've heard other people comment that the minute you say assessment to a potential Mm -hmm. candidate, um, some of them might not show up Mm -hmm. for further interviews. And so have you had that experience? And, And what are the particular ways that you assess candidates before they come into the job? And have you had success with them continuing to follow through and not being scared off, if you will? Yes, that is such a great question, Jackie. Um, I'll say we've been very thoughtful and intentional about where we use assessments. 
And at this point in time, we only use it for our executives. So we use it for our VPs and above, and in certain cases, senior directors as well. And here are the reasons for that. Uh, from a candidate experience standpoint, having them go through an assessment creates, creates time and extends the amount of time it takes from the first conversation you have with the candidate to when you hire them. It does not make for um, the best candidate experience if it's extended. That being said, we are very focused on how we interview them and assess them without the assessments through competency-based behavioral questions, mm -hmm. through being thoughtful about the consistency of how we ask those questions, through setting the context and expectations for the hiring managers and interview panels, uh, making sure they're diverse and inclusive, uh, making sure candidate experience is at the center of it all. With our executives, we believe we need assessments because those are really uh, critical jobs in terms of how they not just run, run the business, but how they run the company. And we believe there's an inherent difference in the two. Running a market segment, running a business segment, running a department, running a function is different than the responsibility of running the company and the enterprise. And we want to ensure that we're putting in the right kind of thought and intention and looking for the right fit and allowing for that assessment process to be developmental, both for external and internal candidates. So we do not use those assessments to say, thou shall not get the job because you did not pass the assessment. We say, based on the critical success factors of this executive level role, here are how your strengths match against it, and here are your development areas. And to allow you to succeed, whether you're selected in that position or not, we are going to give you some developmental feedback and some coaching sessions. So it's really changed in terms of the candidate experience on how we use assessments and where we use them. I think that makes all the sense in the world. And it tells me that language matters. Mm -hmm. um, so assessments versus looking at someone's competencies when they come in the job. And so you stream, you have um, streamlined this whole application process. Yes. You know, I, I remember from our talk, you're saying that it's now a three minute application process, much fewer interviews. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think I have a little devil's advocate question for you. <laughs> um, it's great that you streamlined it, but I guess the one thing I think about is how can you be sure that you're hiring the right candidates if you're not spending the, the amount of time that we have traditionally spent with mm -hmm. candidates? And I know you have it all figured out, but I want the audience to know that you obviously have this all figured out. So talk to us about that. So I promise you, I don't have it all figured out. <laughs> uh, but let me tell you the philosophy behind it. Uh, first off, we have a segmented approach again with our interview process and application. So applications across the board, we've decided that we need the most critical information in the application because no matter what you're reading the resume. So why have the candidate complete 10, 15 years of experiences and have them complete their high school diploma or where their college is? We just kind of say, here are the critical uh, needs of the role, do you meet them and tell us how you meet them. And the, the resume that's attached is part of the application. So significantly better candidate experience. 
in terms of the streamlined interview process, we have high volume hiring for, as you can imagine, our CDL drivers and our um, mechanics and technicians. When you're hiring that number of people, um, there are a few things that you're looking for. One is if they have the CDL experience and they don't have uh, very many marks on their background, et cetera. And uh, how do you ensure that you can train them on the job? And let me compare it against the experience that they had. We would have CDL drivers come in four, five, six different times for an interview. And sometimes it was because the hiring manager was on a route or the candidate was on the route themselves and they needed yet another person to talk to them. And we needed somebody to feel, oh, does this person have the X factor? And there was a lot of subjective criteria that were used to lengthen the interview process. So for our high volume roles, we know very clearly what we are looking for. Uh, and we have streamlined that process into one interview process, one time interview. And that's wow. worked for us. Wow. For other roles, um, for technical roles or for uh, higher level roles, we follow the traditional process, but we truncate it. So uh -huh. instead of having the candidate meet with 12 people individually, we have now encouraged panels. Um, instead of having 12 people ask the same questions or ask questions that come to the top of their head, we talk about and prepare the panels on what areas of focus are you going to ask the questions around. Uh -huh. So we've streamlined the process that way. Not rocket science, but it's an evolution for our world. So Shweta, you're being modest um, because you have not only been very thoughtful uh, in terms of streamlining the candidate experience, but still giving the best candidates. Um, I also remember from my notes that you all rank seventh on candidate experience awards. So um, I would say to this audience, you have quite a bit figured out. Um, tell us about what was a pain point in all of this, in all of this hiring? I would say a huge pain point was resistance from the business. Um, one of the reasons um, we experienced resistance is because they felt like until you had met a candidate four or five different times, um, you wouldn't know whether they were the right candidates. Right. Or when we identified uh, one of the process improvements was a centralized interviewing team because they know what they're looking for and they can hire for uh, roles across the enterprise. They felt like their people needed to meet with the individuals. Uh, their location was unique. Um, nobody else could figure out how their location operated, et cetera. Okay. I'll tell you that resistance was short-lived because we um, took a pilot approach. We listened to all their pain points and their challenges. We incorporated their feedback into the process. We ensured they had representatives in the centralized and the streamlined process. And we tried it on for size and said, let's try it. We have nothing to lose. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, let's see what we can tweak and refine. And if we need to abandon, we will. And this notion of trying it out so that we can meet the volume needs that we were experiencing, that the system had never experienced before, I think it created an openness uh, for collaboration and partnership. And so now we're expanding that model uh, because it's working. 
we wouldn't have been able to hire almost 15,000 people had we not shifted and pivoted up our approach. Wow, well, that's fantastic, Shweta. So what I'd like to do now is just pause. I see a couple of questions coming in from the chat. Um, and let's take a few questions. Nina, I'm going to turn it over to you. And then what I'd like to do is turn it over to Eric, um, who will lead us in some poll questions emphasizing DE&I um, in the employee value proposition. So, but until then, Nina, um, can we take some questions both from the chat and both from audience real time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, Shweta, so much for sharing. We definitely have a lot of questions for you already. Um, one of the first questions that came up was wanting to know whether your interview team itself is diverse and whether that's also reflective of the workforce that you're hiring. Yes. So that was an evolution. That was a change that we incorporated um, to ensure that all the interview panels and the interview teams are diverse and re reflective of the communities that we serve in, reflective of the goals that we're trying to meet, and reflective of the candidates that we have both internally and externally. It's wonderful. Um, we actually have a few questions that are very similar about your TA team and how you developed your training with the TA team, whether you did that internally. Um, so maybe you can just talk a little bit more about that. And then I'll also invite everyone who, um, who shared their questions around that. Um, if you have clarifying questions that you want to ask, just to come off of mute, um, turn on your video and um, dig in with it a little bit. Sure. So we outsourced it. Uh, we didn't feel like uh, where we were on the maturity scale that we could create content uh, that would be meaningfully valid and credible for our TA team. So we worked with an external partner and the name is escaping me right now, but I'm, I'd be happy to follow up if anybody's interested. But we went through an external vendor who focuses and um, is an expert in the area of the ENI, specifically in the talent acquisition space. So all our TA professionals were certified by this external organization. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of people in the call would definitely love to hear um, who that vendor was um, and how you found that training to be impactful. Like what behaviors did that change? couple of things that we saw meaningful difference almost immediately um, is our TA professionals' ability to source talent um, in more pools. They widened and explored their pools. They became more creative um, and started to think out of box on where they can source talent. And two, uh, because they felt like they were matured in their thought process and they were partnering directly with the business, they help the business leaders think outside the box as well. So an example I can give you is traditionally, um, we didn't put a focus on, for example, hiring female bus drivers. They are CDL certified and they're females. Why wouldn't we consider them? How do we ensure that we're focused on the skills and we can teach them on our assets? Yes, our trucks are different than school buses. But that learning curve is easy to overcome, and we can do that with our training programs. So that those kind of ch change behaviors. 
Yeah, digging into that just a little bit more. Um, we have a lot of curiosity around how you rolled that process out, improved that process with your managers specifically. So even if you are getting a more diverse talent pool, how are you getting that change to happen on the manager level? So we did it organically. We did not do a campaign. We did not want this to feel like a training that was imposed on them. So each TA team at the local level partnered with that hiring team and said, hey, at the next interview, let's practice some new things. What do you think about approaching the interview like this? You know, let's try this method. I have these candidates that don't check all your conventional boxes, but let's, let's meet them and see. And it was done more organically and we provided tools and resources and templates and things like that. But in our world um, and in our culture, the more you do it organically as partners and as collaborators versus showing up uh, as us telling them what to do, the more effectiveness and the longevity and the sustainability we got. And so that's the approach we took. I love that. And that really seems to just bring it back to your quote that you started off this call with. Um, that really does wrap up our questions for now from the audience. I know that we'll continue to get more rolling in a little bit later. Um, but with that, I'll turn it over to Eric. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nina. All right. Thanks, Nina. Hello, everyone. Um, so first, I thought I'd just start out here. We uh, um, I was cruising around a little bit last night and found uh, uh, WM's uh, 2022 ESG report. That's Environmental, Social, and Governance Report. Um, and I saw that you had some really strong goals listed mm -hmm. in there, uh, sp specifically for uh, representation for women in um, the industry. And uh, it shows here that right now you have about 19% women in the workforce, and you're looking by 2025 to have the lead in industry and female representation at all levels. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing I was curious about was uh, how are you, um, what specific kind of outreach are you doing to try to make that happen? Um, that's a great question, and um, I have to say, Eric, we have even furthered our BHAG, as we'd like to call it, Big Hairy Audacious Goals, around our diversity metrics, and we have a 30 by 30 goal, 30% 30 diverse females and 30% ethnic minorities and managers and above. So very excited about pushing the envelope even further than this. Um, we're trying to do this in multiple ways. So as you think about reaching these goals, it's not just being able to attract diverse talent, it's also be able to keep them, right? Mm. So from an attraction standpoint, uh, we already talked about the talent acquisition strategies, but I'll also say we are doing, um, we're really being intentional about our partnerships. Our partnerships with HBCUs, uh, we have partnerships with organizations like the Fairy God Boss, the Mom Project, um, a lot of other companies that allow us access into not just the uh, talent base, but also understanding the motivational reasons why somebody would want to join an organization like ours. 
another um, um, another aspect of partnership is um, we have this program called IEP or Innovative Employment Pathways. And this program is specifically focused on the overlooked and underserved. So think about homeless individuals, previously incarcerated, women wanting flexible work schedules, um, individuals on the spectrum, um, differently abled, etc. So our program around IEP allows us to create partnerships with agencies that help these individuals with life skills and with life challenges. And we give them gainful employment and teach them how to maintain um, a great working record. So really happy to say that we piloted these programs in multiple locations and we have a couple of hundred folks within that program and ones that have become drivers, ones that have gained uh, promotions and things like that. So uh, we're trying a lot of different things and then other partnerships with universities, schools, driving schools, um, we're looking at high school partnerships, trade schools and things like that. So we're trying a, a multi-pronged approach from a talent acquisition standpoint. From a return, sorry. Oh, go, go right ahead, that was, that's excellent, yeah. yeah. From a retention standpoint, um, we are trying to ensure that we're building a culture of inclusion. And so we have, we have things on a spectrum that we're looking at, including our total rewards, uh, employee resource groups. We are fairly new on that journey, but we surveyed our employees and based on what they said, we've already launched our employee resource groups for women, for uh, a multicultural employee resource group and one for LGBTQ+. So it's, um, and we're doing it, making sure that we are balancing a top-down approach with a grassroots interest. Because my experience has been, if those employee resource groups aren't grassroots led, then it feels like a corporate directive. And what we've done to circumvent that is we've identified business champions in each of our 18 to 19 business segments and we provide them the resources and tools, but then they get to what I call glocalized programming. You know, they have the global approach, the enterprise approach of what we are providing, but they can localize and contextualize what it means for their own areas. And we've been very successful. So very new in the journey, but our membership has gone up and the engagement is really encouraging. So I know, um, I think, uh, we have plans for Jackie to ask a little bit more about some of the ESG or the um, ERG groups that you're kicking off soon. Um, I was uh, was there anything else in the employee value proposition that you're you're changing to help to try to make these goals? Um, I don't know. I know some people uh, sort of focus on uh, uh, paternity leaves, things like that, to try to encourage, you know, uh, make some shifts like that. I didn't know if. There's anything sure. else you can highlight? Sure. So when when we started thinking about what our employer value proposition is, we wanted to tie in our strategic business framework, what we believe are our commitments and values, and those are all on our website, and um, ensuring that it's leaning into our ESG goals as well as our diversity and inclusion goals. 
So we look at it from the perspective of a 6C model. Um, one is compensation, so making sure our pay practices and total rewards are inclusive. And so we have a works team that works on that. Our culture, which I, we talked about a little bit. Our colleagues, so making sure we are creating an environment where people enjoy working with each other, for each other, um, and with each other. Um, career, you know, creating career opportunities that are skills first. That is a slightly uh, an evolution for our organization where we are doing selections for our leadership development programs or selections for our training programs based on critical success factors for the job and the competencies that this individual displays. Um, and we go around the circle around those six C's and those pillars to make sure we are storytelling in an effective way. We are creating our um, total reward strategy in an effective way and being holistic with our approach versus looking at it ad hoc. Uh -huh. We are not there yet. So I couldn't, I couldn't tell you that here are the seven or 12 things that we're doing from an employee value proposition that we think is going to land perfectly. But we are chipping away at it uh, at a meaningful pace. And we feel like uh, we're making meaningful difference in the space. Yeah, I like that yeah. you led with communication. I feel like a lot of people sort of miss out on that and they have a great employee value proposition, but it's just not out there. Jackie, did you have something you wanted to? Yeah, so as part of this conversation, Shweta, there's several questions coming through the chat. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm particularly interested in is how did you, what was the criteria you used to select the 30% goal? That's a great question. So we used our internal workforce analytics to see what our current and existing rate of employees were and at what rate we were acquiring them. <clears throat> we also did a market study based on geographic factors and we partnered with one of the big four firms to give us access into the demographic data of the talent that exists in all of the regions. We extrapolated some of those numbers and with an analytical point of view, created that number. We believe it's a stretch goal. Uh, we may or may not get there, but we wanted to stretch ourselves. We didn't want to be comfortable in those goals. And so, Eric, the point um, uh, that you had asked me around being a leader in our industry with female representations, we are there right now. You know, as you think about the environmental services industry, we are there right now. Okay. So we needed to push ourselves even further. <laughs> and that's how we did it. We did it with a very mathematical methodical and analytical approach. I think that makes absolute sense. And, you know, one question that, that came up and I particularly appreciate this question um, from Christine Pataloni. Um, These are good North Star measures for diversity, but what metrics are you using to reflect an inclusive culture? So are you counting heads, Shweta, or are you making heads count? What's your focus? Um, I would say we are good at counting heads. We are figuring out on how to make heads count. Um, and I think that there's a follow-up question around employee surveys and voice of the employee. We're working through all of that. We're working through we're launching 
uh, an employee survey um, in September that we believe will capture the benchmark data. That part we haven't figured out yet. Like I told you, Jackie, <laughs> I haven't figured out everything. But I think uh, anecdotally, um, which I'm always afraid to share anecdotal stories because, you know, they can be biased. The comments and the responses we get after every event that's focused around our culture or diversity, equity, or inclusion um, has just been overwhelming. Comments like, I, I feel like I can be myself. This is the first time and the first employer that's made me feel like I can bring my whole self to work. Um, it was amazing to see an executive talk about uh, her journey as she was coming out. Um, it was fun to cook paella with our Hispanic leader. Um, just the comments that we're getting, which I know we tabulate and we identify trends, um, have been wonderful and are directionally accurate, but we still have some work to do on the measuring of the inclusiveness. Remember, wow. we are still very new in our journey. I, I think you have more figured out than you're giving yourself credit for. <laughs> um, the questions continue to pour in. Eric, um, can we yeah. continue with questions for a couple of minutes? Yeah, I, let's, let's go to Jessica um, Pastor. But Jessica, would you mind coming off uh, mute maybe and uh, sharing your question? Yeah, so we do an engagement survey at our company and um, with, with we partner with Gallup and have been doing that for a couple of years now. But I want to incorporate diversity or DEI specific questions into this survey. I just don't know if if doing it from like a blind survey perspective, we're gonna yield the kind of feedback we would like to see, or if it would be more effective to do focus groups. I just, not knowing as we're embarking in this journey, do people feel comfortable being frank in person through dialogue and discussion, or if you have found um, surveys to be more effective, but it sounds like you're just starting your survey journey this year. Mm -hmm. um, I think this needn't be an either or, approach, it can be a both and approach. Um, I think the survey results gets you some level of critical mass and empirical quantitative data that you can marry then with the qualitative data that comes out of the focus groups. Um, I can't sit here and tell you that I know what that looks like and means, um, but that's the approach we are taking. We are doing focus groups. We are doing voice of the employee work at the local level with small groups. I think it's really important that when you do focus groups that you're doing it with a professional mindset around how to ask questions, how to create psychological safety in those focus group environments, and how not to lead the witness in those environments. And I think that is very hard if you're trying to do it internally. Um, so I, I think this could be a both-and approach and you find a way to triangulate the information. Okay, thank you. I, I agree. I, I've noticed that a lot of time it's good to start with the quantitative and then go to qualitative afterwards. Because once you've disaggregated that that big employee survey data, that's where you're going to really know where it's good to set your focus groups and drill down to get to specifics. Um, let's see. Uh, Jackie, did you see any other questions we should grab before? I, I see a couple of comments, but I think those are all the questions for now, Eric. Uh, would love to 
um, have you engage this audience in your polls? Okay. All right. Let's switch to a poll. Um, this is to set up a little bit of data that I'm going to share next, but this is as a result of the challenging talent market. Is your organization placing greater emphasis on its commitment to diversity, inclusion, and belonging as an element of employee value proposition? So yes, no, plan to in the next 12 months, don't know or other. Um, and while we wait to get a few results on that, um, so, so were there any other ways, Shweta, that you've been uh, leveraging DEI practices specifically um, to help attract and retain talent, maybe that we haven't covered quite yet? Uh, we covered quite a bit. Um, yeah, we did. The other thing that we're trying to do, I think I mentioned it peripherally, is uh, create a strategy around meeting individuals uh, when they are 18 and above and in high school and creating a vision or visibility to what careers within environmental services could look like um, for them. So there's not a lot of uh, females that grew up and say, dream to be a garbage truck driver. But I think a lot of individuals in this generation respond to the fact that we are making a difference in the world. We are creating a sustainability platform that allows us to leave the world better than how we found it. And that the work that they're doing is meaningful and purposeful. Um, the other piece as we think about it is how do we maintain the excitement in individuals around our industry? So if you think about little kids waiting for their trash truck drivers, uh, making cookies for them, uh, writing cards for them, they're excited, they want to be on the truck and they um, really want to grow up to become trash truck drivers. Our branding and communication team and as we're working on how do we storytell around that excitement and that passion and how do we maintain it through middle school, through high school, through working um, individuals. So there's a lot of things that we are um, looking at. It's very important to you know not get lost in trying to do everything at once and sometimes want, wanting to solve this problem can require a multi-pronged approach. Uh, but what works for your organization may not work for mine and vice versa. So it's really important to contextualize what you're doing to your environment, to your audience, to your employees. I think that early targeted outreach, though, is pretty critical. So um, uh, do we have some results? Okay. So, yeah, we have 89% uh, who said that, yeah, they have been putting more focus on diversity, inclusion, and belonging in their employee value proposition, pretty much as a result of the talent market that we have right now. And I wanted to bring that up just to um, set up our next slide. This is from the talent imperative report uh, that we highlighted at the beginning of the meeting. Um, this is one that we did in um, uh, conjunction with Fortune magazine. And one thing we found is that uh, you know, given the competitive talent market, uh, the elements that are most important for your organization to offer in the coming year. And we found that commitment to diversity, inclusion, and belonging showed up number two right behind 
uh, flexibility in work environments. So where, when, and how employees work, which we completely expected that first one. But it was just so gratifying for me to see that commitment to diversity, inclusion, and belonging was right there at the number two spot. And especially when we broke it down, uh, we always at I4CP break our data down into what high performing organizations are doing versus lower performing organizations. We've got sort of a rigorous way that we look at that. And the fact that higher performing organizations, 41% versus 28% of the low performing organizations are really putting the emphasis there. So I, I think it shows that if you're putting that into your, um, um, employee value proposition and really leading with that. I think that shows that you're really, you know, it, it shows that you're trying to attract and retain talent through your culture, um, which is one of the big findings we got out, out of this study, just that culture, purpose, um, feelings of belonging and inclusion were actually much more important than things like compensation, which you can see on this sort of fell halfway down the list. Um, but that and development opportunities, a lot of other aspects that I know that you deal with in your job. So um, have you seen that organizational culture and purpose become more of a talent driver in the last few years? Um, I know, especially with COVID and a lot of people reassessing their priorities that it has, but um, have you seen it with a lot of the candidates that you deal with? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's embedded in the questions they ask us. Um, it's embedded in how they choose us as a potential employer and how, how they interact with us through social media, through our website, and through in-person engagements. Um, it is so interesting the last few years, while I, was, I have been at WM and otherwise, how much the company culture matters to employees uh, or to candidates, how much purposeful work matters to candidates and how much um, it matters to them that you're an organization committed to inclusion and equity. So um, um, I've definitely seen a shift. And Eric, if I may, um, I did remember something that I'd love to talk about that we're doing to differentiate ourselves, to attract uh, candidates we recently announced, I want to say last year, um, for the fourth quarter, a benefit that we provide to our employees. And it's an education benefit. So fully funded education benefit for over 170 different programs. I know a lot of company offers tuition reimbursement or education benefits, but what really differentiates us, Eric, is starting this year, January 1, we extended that benefits to our dependents. So their spouses and their children can get education on us uh, along those programs. And those programs are specifically chosen to ensure that they create career opportunities within the realm of um, jobs that we have here at WM. But it's allowing us to create our employer value proposition in being a pur purposeful company, creating social impact, but also selfishly building our own workforce you know, we're creating workforce development. So uh, a trash truck driver with five children who had sleepless nights and how he's going to put them through college doesn't have to worry about it anymore because he works for WM and we have that benefit to offer. 
So I'm seeing the reaction in chat right now, which is just wow, like a whole bunch of wows, which was exactly what went through my mind when you said that. And just how awesome that is. What what kind of reaction did that uh, get from your workforce when that um, was rolled out? So positive, so thankful. I think we created a discretionary effort and retention um, in such an exponential way. But we're also very, you know, practical about it, right? There's what percentage of our employees are going to benefit from it in the near future? Individuals that are closer to retirement and are empty nesters and have adult children with jobs, not so much. Um, younger parents or single individuals that don't have children, not so much. But there is a niche employee population that this is so meaningful and rewarding for. So very positive feedback. Um, um, we were also rated as one of the most innovative programs with fast companies, so got a lot of external recognition, which further uh, furthers our employer value proposition and our brand and creates um, attractiveness to us as an employer. Thank you for listening to this episode of I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I encourage you to join us live for these discussions each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time, so that you can ask questions of our guests and co-hosts and participate in the conversation. Just go to i4cp.com forward slash events to register. We hope you'll keep tuning in as I4CP brings you more great HR executives to discuss how high-performance organizations are leveraging best and next practices in HR. Uh, registration is open for our Next Practices Now conference in late March this year in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, it's an annual tradition that we're super excited to be back to after two years of being virtual only. It is both in-person and virtual, so if you can't make it in Scottsdale, you do have that other option, and there'll be a lot more information coming on the speaker lineup very soon. Thank you, and we hope you have a great and productive week ahead.